I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, July 29th, 2013. This is one of those programs where I've probably got too much program and not enough time. We'll have to make the best of it. <laughs> Sit down, put your seatbelt on, tinfoil pyramid hats, you'll need them all, I think. Actually, today's episode, not that crazy, but thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And the idea here is to help you get into God's Word, read it in context, know it, don't be biblically illiterate. Don't be deceived and schnookered and bamboozled by people who are teaching falsely in the name of Jesus. That's Jesus warned us about these times, and they're here. They're here now. Uh, you know, when there's false Christ, false prophets, false teachers, you know, people who are saying twisted things, drawing away disciples after themselves, not correctly handling God's word. And as a result of it, <clears throat> we're trying to put a lifeline out there, if you would, a lifeline that will help you. Get into Scripture, see what it says, and learn the truth and not be deceived. Deception is not good, and uh, the consequences of this type of deception, they're eternal. So we're doing what we can to reach you with the truth and to equip you so that you can protect yourself, protect your family, protect your friends, and preach the uh, the truth, proclaim Christ and Him crucified. You get what I'm saying. Okay, at the opening of the program, I told you that that, well, we've got a lot of ground to cover. And you know what that means? We have a lot of ground to cover. <clears throat> Sorry for the redundancy. So I'm going to skip the monologue today, and we're going to get right into it. Let me explain what we're going to talk about in today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I've got two Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley emails that I would like to read to you regarding um, Brian Zahn's More Beautiful Gospel and uh, <clears throat> Pastor Charmley has sent me two emails. They, uh, we've noticed this about Pastor Charmley is that when he sends in 
emails, they have a tendency to come in in pairs, sometimes in threes. It just depends on if he's weeping and gnashing teeth, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, I, although I, you know, with as great as a pastor and preacher that uh, Pastor Charmley is, I, I, I always feel bad that uh, somebody as, well, civilized as Pastor Charmley would listen to this program. But I'm glad that he does. <clears throat> you get what I'm saying. So uh, we got a Pastor Chervais Nicholas Edward Charmley uh, sermon, uh, not sermon, email, two, two emails to look at. Then we've got a, um, <clears throat> well, a Roman Catholic Church update. Uh, the Pope has said some stuff that makes me just want to scratch my head and go, uh, 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 what? What is he talking about? <clears throat> this is an interesting Pope that we have on our hands here, folks. And, uh, you know, remember, what was it, five, six weeks ago, he made statements about atheists potentially being in heaven, and and, and it was weird. And, um, well, he's made another one of those statements that gets, makes you just kind of go, uh, what? In fact, I would even say that um, we're starting to see a pattern now with this new Pope, Pope Francis. And he reminds me of uh, Rick Warren. Yeah, that. <clears throat> yeah, and what I mean by that is, you know, Rick Warren. This is a guy who says strange things um, and twists God's word in bizarre ways and does weird things. You know that. Uh, and then when you you know people call him on it or critique him, you know his responses and retorts and defenses are well out of step with what Scripture says. But listen, um, we don't expect the Pope to actually be in step with what Scripture says because the whole Roman Catholic system is built on false doctrine um, and a false view of um, the role of Scripture, you know, things like that. So, but, um, you know, this is, we're getting something different with this Pope, though, and uh, not sure what it's going to develop into, but we'll see. And then we've got a, uh, we've got an extended Renovatus update. Um, yeah, Jonathan Martin, of uh, the you know the author of the book Prototype, he also pastors a church out in uh, Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, called Renovatus. We did uh, I did an extensive uh, sermon review on uh, you know one of the sermons he preached from his Prototype book, and um, and then also the Brian Zahn's sermon, you know, a more beautiful gospel. Well, that was preached at Renovatus. And so we're going to be we're going to be taking a look at Jonathan Martin literally trying to use scripture to argue against the sufficiency of scripture. It's a fascinating argument. It doesn't hold water and I'll explain to you why, but um and then in hour number 2 we have a sermon review. We're going to be heading down to uh, New Spring Church. Uh Perry Noble will not be preaching it, but uh, they started a uh, last Sunday they started a new series out there at um New Spring called Redneck and <laughs> Yeah. <clears throat> anyway, well, th- we're going to be reviewing the first sermon in the Redneck sermon series uh, in hour number two today. So it's you know, there. There's some uh, strange stuff afoot. Let's just put it that way. So <clears throat> assume the uh, crash position. Put your uh, seatbelt on. Uh, up the tray tables in the upright and locked position. Tinfoil pyramid hats on. Y- you know the drill. Uh, we got to dive right into it. We've got a lot of ground to cover, and uh, oh, how, how's that song go? We, we got a long way to go and a short time to get there, so let's dive right into it. All right, like I promised, we have two Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley emails. The first one, uh, this is Pastor Jervis Nicholas Edward Charmley, you know, of, you know, from over 
in Great Britain, uh, Hanley Stoke-on-Trent. The uh, subject reads, Zahn's More Beautiful Gospel. Uh, Pastor Charlie writes, he says, Listening to Zond, I'm not in the least surprised by what he is saying, except for perhaps at the excessive shallowness of it all. It so happens that at the moment I'm reading The Christian Experience of Forgiveness by H.R. McIntosh, who taught systematic theology at New College Edinburgh from 1904 to 1936. This isn't a new book. In fact, it was first published in 1927. In it, McIntosh demonstrates conclusively the centrality of forgiveness in Christianity and that the idea that wrath is incompatible with love is based on an illegitimate anthropomorphism. While in us it is all but impossible to, quote, be angry and not sin, unquote, the nature of holy love is such that God must be angry against the sinner. Nor can we say that God hates the sin but loves the sinner in a facile manner, for, quote, there is no such thing as sin apart from a sinner any more than pleasure could be real in pure abstraction irrespective of of a pleased consciousness. The one fact in the case is the sinful life to which God's attitude invariably is personal. To be angry with a thing and sin abstracted from the sinner is no more. is It's a moral absurdity. The man who spitefully kicks the stool over which he has tripped in the dark has for the moment become irrational. Anger, the anger of moral love, can only be directed on moral beings. And to say that Jesus never turned his back on any is a manifest falsehood. After all, how else can you regard his treatment of the Pharisees and Sadducees, or his complete silence in the presence of Herod, or for that matter, his denunciation of the cities in which he did his mighty works? Of course, one can create a completely false moral impression by neglecting the great fact of human guilt and the need of pardon, but that is rather to ignore what the Bible actually says. To the paralytic, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Now, according to Zahn, forgiveness is not the gospel, but it seems that according to Jesus, it is. I leave it to the listeners to recognize which is more likely to be correct. Great email, Pastor Charmley. Email number two. This subject reads, uh, Zahn's false presentation. Dear Chris, in saying, quote, Jesus did not come to save us from the Father, Brian Zond is using a popular ploy of the modern liberal, namely contrasting his teaching with a caricature of the gospel. It is quite true that some very crude gospel presentations by ignorant fundamentalists have given the impression of a son who is all love and a father who is all wrath, though one suspects the true number of these presentations to be minuscule. But that is simply not what any confession of faith has ever said, nor is it what any responsible preacher has ever said. It is the Protestant equivalent of the Roman teaching that presents a wrathful judge, Jesus, and a kindly Mary, and, the equal, and equally false. It is simply not fair for a fellow to present the arguments of his opponents in their weakest and most repulsive form and his own arguments in their most attractive form. More to the point, it betrays a consciousness of weakness that is to be corrected by an equally conscious falsehood. The fact that Jesus came to save us from our sins, and sin is something that Zond has a great deal of trouble talking about, to him we repeat the words of Anselm of Canter Canterbury, Nodum considerati quanti ponderis sit peccatum. You have not yet considered the severity of sin. And the words have repeated themselves ever since judging facile theories. This is from H.R. McIntosh, The Christian Experience of Forgiveness, London, 1927, page 159. I'm going to have to... 
check to see if that book is available on Google Books. A lot of a lot of the old out of print uh, dogmatics texts oftentimes are available in Google Books, and I have no problem getting PDFs of them and reading them on my iPad that way. It's a great way to kind of read good theology that hasn't been infected by uh, today's silliness. Anyway, <clears throat> moving along. Yeah, that's right. It's time for a Roman Catholic Church update. The Pope has said something that, well, has the world just going, yay! It has Christians going, yeah, what? Yeah, this story comes to us via the BBC. The headline reads, Pope Francis, who am I to judge gay people? Um, yeah. Let me go ahead and kill the music so that we can do this right. And we have a follow-up story to this, too, from uh, Bishop, uh, Art, retired Archbishop Desmond Tutu. By the way, uh, Desmond Tutu was Anglican, not Roman Catholic. But uh, <clears throat> he still is Anglican, but he's not... He's not Roman Catholic. So um, so the BBC writes, um, Pope Francis has said gay people should not be marginalized but integrated into society. Speaking to reporters on a flight back from Brazil, he reaffirmed the Roman Catholic Church's position that homosexual acts were sinful, but homosexual orientation was not. He was responding to questions about whether there was a gay lobby in the Vatican. Quote, if a person is gay and seeks God, and has goodwill, who am I to judge them? He also said he wanted a greater role for women in the church, but insisted they could not be priests. The Pope arrived back in Rome on Monday after a week-long tour of Brazil, his first trip, uh, road trip abroad, uh, which climaxed with a huge gathering in Rio de Janeiro's Copacabana Beach for a World Catholic Youth Festival, and festival organizers estimated it attracted more than three million people. Well, so let me let me play the BBC's translation of what the Pope said on the airplane ride back from uh, Brazil. Um, here, here's what the BBC reported. A lot is written about the gay lobby. I still haven't seen anyone in the Vatican with an identity card saying they're gay. The media say that they're there. I think when one is found a person like this, we have to distinguish between the fact that they're a gay person and the fact that there is a gay lobby. If a person is gay and seeks God and has goodwill, who am I to judge him? Yeah, this, it, hmm. this is one of those things that sounds like there needs to be some firmer definitions as to what on earth he's talking about. Now, let me let me explain what I mean here. Uh, if you remember back in May, I traveled to Montana. I traveled to the fine state of Montana, and I spoke at the Reformation Montana Conference. And the first night of the conference was a debate. And it really wasn't a debate, though. Uh, a debate between James White and uh, a guy who claims to be a gay Christian. And um, what I found interesting in their exchange okay, um, was that the uh, the guy claiming to be a gay Christian the way he was, well, defining the word gay would be somebody who doesn't have any 
uh, amorous love, um, sexual attractions towards people of the opposite sex, but instead is sexually attracted to people of the same sex. So we're talking about somebody who, who struggles with same sex attraction. Now, okay, if that's what we're talking about here, and I have to put a big if here, um, because what I notice in these conversations and the way the media handles these um, the statements and the way this is being dealt with in the church, uh, there is a distinction that needs to be made here. And what I mean by that is this, is that there are people who, for whatever reason, um, and it really comes down to our sinful nature, who struggle with same-sex attraction, and they're Christians, okay? And these are people who trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They're baptized. They're repentant. They understand that homosexual lust is a sin. They understand that homosexual acts and behaviors are sinful. And so they daily live a penitent life struggling with something that they are that is unwelcome in their life. This is not, as far as I'm concerned, um, this is not something that is that much different, although there is a difference, uh, than the guy who um, is surfing the internet looking at porn or walking down the street and he sees a girl and uh, and just starts having lustful thoughts. You get what I'm saying here? In, in that particular case, the Christian brother who's struggling with those types of sins recognizes that they're sins and they're penitent and uh, and and they are trusting in Christ for forgiveness, trusting in God to give them strength to resist those temptations. If that's what we're talking about here, okay, I get it, okay? But the question is, is the way this is being spun in the media, um, the question is, how is the word, the word gay being defined here? And I think this is one of those things where we gotta we got to pay careful attention to words and define words. And I have a problem with saying that somebody is gay. That is a problem, and it's, it's very problematic, okay? It's one thing to say this is a man, born a male, who is struggling with the sin of same-sex attraction. No problem with that. That doesn't mean he's, quote, gay. That means he's a man who has a sin that uh, Satan continues to tempt him with, okay? But I, I see when when the world hears the word gay... What what they're basically saying is, oh, well, gay is, well, that's just one of the other genders. You got male, female, you got gay, and in all this kind of stuff. And they're, they're, the way they assume it, it, well, this is just a genetic thing. People are born this way, the same, the same way that people are born in the Orient with, uh, with different color skin, uh, dark hair, different eye, um, you know, di- different shape on the eye, you know, different cheekbones. Same way that people who are of African descent, they have really dark skin and they might have curly Afro type hair. So there's basically the the way the world is using the word gay. It's it that's how they're using it. So we, this is this is problematic. This is really problematic because what the Pope has said, although the the, the BBC report says that the gay you know that um, that homosexual acts are sinful, but then you've got the church. Um, saying that homosexual orientation is not because Romans doesn't say that. You see, again, scripture doesn't talk about same sex attraction as a homosexual orientation. It doesn't refer to it that way at all. In fact, 
uh, the book of Romans is really clear on this. Romans chapter 1, I'll start at verse 18. Here's what it says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Okay, so these idolatry. They suppress the truth. They deny God's existence. They worship false deities, claiming that that's the God who made them. Okay, and here's the therefore. Therefore... God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was for, blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. So, um, yeah, here's how Scripture describes it. It doesn't say that people are born with a homosexual orientation. It says that these are lusts of the heart that these are dishonorable passions, and this is an error, okay? And all of this, according to Romans, is a judgment of God. This, this is the, uh, on sin and things of that nature. So for anyone in the church to say, oh, well, listen, um, homosexual acts are sinful, but homosexual orientation was not, yeah, um, this is not the way Scripture s speaks. And then these words being portrayed by, you know, uh, the media. Oh, well, hey, the church is warming up to it, and, you know, recognizing and including openly homosexual people within the Roman Catholic Church because the Pope says, well, who am I to judge gay people? Got a big problem. Got a big problem. So, um, yeah, he here's the good news. Okay, let me give you the good news. Um, first, let me add a little bit more to the bad news. All of us are sinners. If you read through Romans 1, and then you read through Romans 2, and then you read through the first half of Romans 3, there is not a single person on planet Earth who is not condemned in their sin and the things that they've said, done, and otherwise uh, that are in those sin lists. Every single one of us is touched by that, and every single one of us, is, we're sinners, all of us together. And there are different types of sins and there are different consequences of sins, and there's and uh, so the idea here is is that gossip is mentioned in Romans one as a sin, every bit as much as a sin of of dishonoring passions and lust for people of the same sex, and the dishonoring of your body by copulation with somebody of the same sex. All of those things are are there: adultery, gossip, lust. All of that, we're all sinners. Now, many people in the church, the visible church would have you believe that, oh, that's no problem. God blesses gays and, and gay marriages, and he's all for that. This is the new thing that the Spirit is doing and all this kind of stuff. Not true. That's not really good news. In fact, the good news is this. Christ died even for these sins. The scandal of the cross applies 
Well, to all of us. And it applies even to somebody who is an adulterer, who is a gossip, who is a murderer, who is also guilty of sexual immorality with somebody of the same sex. Christ died for all of those sins. And God pardons and forgives sinners, sinners like me, sinners like you, sinners of all stripes. And so the good news is really so much better than the false good news being preached out there, that somehow God is okay with all this. This is no big deal. Or No, it actually, it, is, it really is a big deal. All of this is a big deal. And the good news is that Christ died for these sins. Repent and be forgiven. God right now is scandalously, and I mean that, scandalously, handing out full and complete pardons for all kinds of sins, the sins that I've committed, the sins that you've committed, and the sins that people around the world have invented as far as all kinds of evil. That's the scandal of the cross, that Christ died for even those sins and wipes them away and says to that person, forgiven, I'm clothing you in my righteousness, enter into heaven. In fact, the good news is so scandalous, folks, I'm going to be in heaven. That's how scandalous it is. It is that scandalous. Uh Uh-huh. You get what I'm saying. Which kind of then leads to our next story. Uh, From the Huffington Post, uh, Desmond Tutu, who is a a retired archbishop within the Anglican Church, the headline reads, Desmond Tutu would prefer hell over a homophobic heaven. Again, this is one of those things where it's like, um, okay, where is he getting this? Okay, this is just, okay. So the uh, articles uh, written by Yasmin Hafiz of the uh, Huffington Post, and here's what it says. Desmond Tutu denounced religions that discriminate against LGTB-identified people by making some very strong statements during the United Nations launch of its uh, of its gay rights program in uh, Cape Town this uh, Friday, uh, reports the AFP. He leaves no doubt about his opinions regarding LGTB rights, declaring, quote, I would not worship a God who is homophobic, and that, and that is how deeply I feel about this. He added, I would refuse to, be a, to go to a homophobic heaven. No, I would say sorry. I mean, I would much rather go to the other place. And South Africa's iconic archbishop is clearly still fighting for equality despite his retirement as he went on to relate the gay rights issue to his country's uh, tumultuous history, saying, I am as passionate about this campaign as I ever was about apartheid. For me, it's at the same level. Well, okay, um, let's, let's get something straight here. Again, the forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of sexual immorality is offered freely to all sinners, all sinners regardless of the sins they've committed. All sinners, Christ died for our sins. That includes adultery. It includes incest. It includes lust. It includes homosexual passions and uh, and uh, copulation. It includes all of that. It includes stealing. It inc- So in heaven, okay, get this. In heaven, there are going to be people who've committed all of these sins, every single one of them. There are going to be people in the heavenly kingdom worshiping Christ in his presence who've committed adultery, 
theft, murder, homosexual sins, the whole gambit. But here's the difference, okay? A homophobic heaven, that's ridiculous, okay? Because, well, homosexual sins are sins. In the heavenly kingdom, nobody will sin anymore. There will be no sin. So, and nobody there in heaven is going to identify themselves as, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm an adulterer. I'm a homosexual. I, no, all of that's forgiven and washed away by the blood of Christ. So, again, this is one of these, this is weird rhetoric. And the problem with this weird rhetoric is that it's designed to do something. It's designed to cast doubt on what God's word says. And you have to see it as that. It's designed to cast doubt. God's word makes it very clear. Christ died for our sins, and he's calling sinners everywhere to repent and to be forgiven. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that Christ is offering forgiveness and mercy. You don't know if he's going to if it's going to be offered to you tomorrow. Today is the day. Repent, be forgiven and reconciled to God. Today he is offering you forgiveness. Repent of your sins. Trust him. This is what scripture teaches. This is the good news. Your sins are forgiven in Christ. Believe this, trust in this, and understand this. Sin is slavery. Sin is not freedom. Sin is what keeps people in bondage. And Christ has come to set us free from slavery to sin, to death, and to the devil. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. During the break, we have a the premiere of a new Max Holiday sketch. It's Rex Quando's uh, uh, Walks to Damascus, or D- Damascus Walks. You get what I'm saying. Stay tuned, listen in. We'll be right back. It's like what not to wear for theology. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Presents Church Day Select. Hey guys, it's Rex here again. Now I know that all of you have been hearing about the latest fad in the church called an Emmaus walk. Well, you know what I think? It's uber lame. I mean, what's so special about going on a little walk, hoping and praying that Jesus is going to show up and have an enlightenment picnic with you? It's not nearly hardcore enough. I'm starting a new fad. It's called the Road to Damascus Walk. You don't go out trying to find Jesus. He finds you. And after he's found you, he knocks you off your horse, throws you in the mud, blinds you, and then sends you on a harrowing journey to a town that you've never been to in order to find a prophet of God. 
It's way more awesome than an ant-infested picnic next to a scum-filled pond! Don't believe me? Well, then give it a shot. I dare you. Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Hello, I'm Brandon House of WorldviewRadio.com. WorldviewRadio.com is the world's premier biblical worldview online radio network. And now you can take it with you on the go with our free app that you can download free of charge at WorldviewWeekend.com forward slash APP. That's WorldviewWeekend.com forward slash APP. And you'll hear the daily and weekly radio programs by people like T.A. McMahon of The Brian Call, Chris Rosebro of Fighting for the Faith, Usama Dakdok and The Truth About Islam, Noise of Thunder with Chris Pinto, Justin Peters and the Justin Peters Program, Crosstalk, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and Prophecy Today, Jesse Johnson with the Bible Teaching Program of Emmanuel, Dr. John Whitcomb, and Mike Gendron of Proclaiming the Gospel Radio, as well as Carl Tycrib with Forcing Change Radio. All of these biblically-based radio programs are available free of charge at worldviewradio.com and through our free app at worldviewweekend.com forward slash app. Biblical Worldview Radio that you can take with you on the go. Uh, warning, there's a lot of people engaging in slippery rhetoric designed to deconstruct and cause you to doubt what God's Word what God's word says regarding homosexual sins. Don't listen to it. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing 
without it. All right, we have a Renovatus update, and this is for the time being the music that I've picked for uh, our Renovatus updates. And here we go. That's uh, from <clears throat> Monty Python's The Holy Grail. Okay, so let me set this up for you. Uh, Jonathan Martin, uh, who is the uh, lead pastor out there at uh, Renovatus out in Charlotte, North Carolina, we've reviewed uh, one of his sermons regarding Prototype, the book that he's written, and noted the fact that uh, there's a problem. And here's the problem, is that he's arguing for you to have the same ba- you know, basic experiences that he's had. His experiences are somehow something to you should expect to have happen in your life, too. And so he, it's a weird mix of his personal spiritual experiences along with the scripture kind of out of context in order to come up with this theology of prototype. Now... Again, I point out the fact that I understand where uh, where Jonathan Martin is coming from only because of this, and that is is that I have spent some time in very legalistic evangelical circles and know for from firsthand experience just how downright um, destructive that is, okay? In fact, I'm absolutely convinced that it is legalistic, all law, no gospel, quote, unquote, Christianity that breeds the next generation of liberals, okay? And in this particular case, I've said this for a long time that that's the case, that uh, legalism breeds liberalism because people can, they can only live under the withering effects of all law, no gospel for so long. And so many people, rather than finding and hearing the biblical gospel, that forgiveness is for Christians, not just people who are coming into Christianity, but it's for Christians. Um, it, they, you know, in order to keep their sanity, okay, in order to keep their sanity, these people will rebel against Christianity and be haunted by Jesus and kind of come up with their own gospel in order to quiet the thunders of Sinai. I think in a lot of ways that's what Jonathan Martin has done. That being the case, he did hear my sermon review, and you're going to hear him in the segment referencing me, uh, you know, the radio guy who critiqued his sermon. Now, I think he missed, he actually missed some of the points that I was making, or he didn't understand what I was saying, and maybe I didn't communicate it well. I'm willing to, you know, take the blame if I didn't communicate properly. But what's interesting is, is that his, this drove him to then do a sermon series um, where you know he he wanted to kind of discuss his view of scripture, and there's a major problem with his view of scripture, and that is is that he's going to try to make a an argument from the Bible against the sufficiency of scripture, and oh boy, and it's a, it's a fascinating argument, but it just doesn't hold up. And so what we're going to start, what we're going to do is we're going to uh, start 
with him talking about the book of Acts. Okay, so he's going to uh, note the fact that he's going to be reading from the book of Acts, and he's going to be in Acts chapter 15. Apparently, Acts chapter 15 gives us a model that we can follow in order to understand that Scripture isn't sufficient. We need community, and we need um, experiences. Here, listen, and here's Jonathan Martin. All working together. Acts chapter 15, and this is the longest and main text we'll look at. I love this text. My friend John Christopher Thomas, who also is part of my tradition, has really contended that this... Now, notice the way he's talking there. My tradition. What's his, quote, tradition? Well, he comes out of the Pentecostal movement. So he calls it the Pentecostal tradition. Now, this is a fascinating way to talk. And I I have to kind of set this up here for you. Um, When somebody talks like this, one of the things I'm concerned about is that they've been influenced by um, postmodern thinking. Okay, And if you don't know the origins of postmodern thinking, you need to go back to the May 11th, 2012 episode of Fighting for the Faith and listen to my lecture called Resistance is Futile, You Will Be Assimilated into the Community. In that lecture, I explain the true roots and origins of postmodernism, its language deconstruction, its view that truth never transcends a community. Okay, so to kind of put it simply, here's the idea. Somebody who's truly postmodern, they would look across the landscape of visible Christianity, of the visible church, so to speak. And they would say, okay, over here, we've got a lot of Roman Catholics. So that's the Roman Catholic tradition. And over here, we've got the uh, Eastern Orthodox tradition. And then we've got the Lutheran tradition. And then we have the Reformed traditions because uh, yeah, the Reformed church is not kind of singular in its confession. So, um, you know, you've got the, you know, the, you know, the, the, the confessions of Dort, Westminster confessions. You've got the uh, London Baptist confessions. All of these are kind of within the general, um, you know, ballpark known as Reformed. So you can say the Reformed traditions. And then you've got the Anabaptist traditions. And then you've got the Methodist traditions. And then you've got the Pentecostal traditions. And so the idea is, is that a postmodern would view all these different traditions as, oh, listen, they're all valid. Everything they say in every one of those traditions is true. As long as this is what they're, they've agreed upon and come to as the Spirit has worked within their community, as they've engaged the text and communally uh, interpreted those texts. Okay? So you know, for the Lutherans, their their tradition, they've come together in community and said, uh, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. And you don't pray to saints and you don't pray to the Virgin Mary and, um, you know, stuff like that. OK, uh, but over in the Roman Catholic Church, they pray to the Virgin Mary and stuff like that. Well, because that's as they've been in conversation with the biblical text in community and as the spirit has guided them, that's what they do in their tradition. And so truth never transcends a community. This is problem. This is a problem because here's the deal. Truth is true regardless of what community you're in. Okay? In other words, think of it this way. Um, the church is Catholic universal. And this is why you, you're going to hear me from time to time saying we really need this word back. Okay? Because the, the phrase Roman Catholicism is an oxymoron. All right? The word Catholic, small c, means universal. Rome is a little provincial place, okay? There's there's a place geographically that's Rome, okay? Rome and universal don't go together. That doesn't make any sense, okay? And in the Nicene Creed, before the Bishop of Rome arrogated to himself um, powers that he does not have, 
biblically, okay, before he usurped his authority and took advantage of the power vacuum that was created by the destruction of major bishoprics in Christianity as a result of the rise of Islam, okay? We, well, we lost Hippo. We lost Alexandria. We lost, yeah, the, the list goes on and on of all the different major places where there were bishops of, uh, of the Catholic small c church that were just obliterated by, uh, by Islam, okay? And what, what happened? Well, the, the Bishop of Rome took advantage of the power vacuum and made himself the supreme pontiff, right? And yet Scripture doesn't do that. But anyway, so so here's the idea, is that we need this word Catholic back. In the Nicene Creed, it says we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Those are two words that we need to, to focus on today, the word Catholic and the word apostolic. Okay, Here's the idea. Jude, in his epistle, talks about contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Sound doctrine is true. And every Christian is bound to believe, teach, and confess sound doctrine, regardless of whether they're in a Pentecostal church, they attend a Roman Catholic church, they attend a Lutheran church, or a, uh, one of the churches within the Reformed traditions, or they're, they're Anabaptists or whatever. They are bound, duty-bound, to believe, teach, and confess sound doctrine and apostolic sound doctrine and teaching. And the word apostolic then is important here, and here's the reason why. Because Christ didn't send, you know, a community. He sent apostles, okay? These were the guys he trained. And so when Christianity says they believe one holy, holy Catholic, it's universal. And apostolic, what they mean by apostolic is, is that the doctrine and the gospel taught by the apostles, plain and simple. So when a church is not Catholic. Instead, it's very unique. That's contrary to what Christianity has been from the beginning. When a church teaches doctrines that are contrary to the apostolic doctrine we have recorded in the Word of God, then we also have a problem. They're either teaching sound doctrine or have joined the ranks of those who teach rank heresy. Okay, Innovation is not called for. We are to believe, teach, and confess the same universal faith that at the apostles taught and is recorded for us in the word of God. Got it? You need to understand that. So it doesn't matter where you go. Two plus two equals four, whether you're in China or whether you're in the United States or in New Zealand or in South Africa. That's universal. And so think of sound doctrine as being true in the same way that two plus two equals four is true everywhere all the time. Got it? That'll help you. We continue. This text is the best model for uh, Pentecostal and charismatic Christians in terms of how we interpret scripture, I would open that up to say, I think this text is the best model we're given for how any Christian of any stripe in any tradition engages scripture, community, and spirit. So Acts 15, beginning with verse 1. Now really pay attention to this narrative because it's fascinating. Then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. And this is what they're saying. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses... You cannot be saved. Okay, this is really important. That's kind of the lead-in. Unless you believe you're circumcised, you can't be saved. That's the setup for all of this. Now, by the way, you want an extensive conversation on this? Go read the book of Galatians, okay, which explains why this isn't true. Why is this not true? Because salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. We're not saved by the law. We're saved by trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. We're saved by grace. For if 
you know, if a law had been given by which anyone could be saved, then Christ died for no reason. So what happens is the Judaizers are misapplying the law and doing so in a way that's saying your justification depends on your keeping of Torah. Okay? The gospel says, no, you're saved purely by what Christ has done for you and your faith and trust in him and his accomplished work for you. Plain and simple. Okay, so this is a salvation issue, and what happens? We have the first church council, and it's those who are invited to be the deciders of this issue, they're all apostles. Okay, this is an apostolic council. Now, before you get all carried away, these aren't bad people. It's not that I think they just want these new Gentile Christians who have come to believe in the risen Jesus, but they haven't come through the route of Jewish faith first. I don't think that their desire is that they want to give people a hard time and just give them, you know, aimless rules and regulations. You can understand how Gentile Christians would be a little bit reluctant about this new instruction that you need as adults to now be circumcised, to be part of the the true faith. They felt like they were being faithful to Torah. We're just interpreting the Old Testament. God's people have to be circumcised. I'm glad that you're worshiping Jesus. We're worshiping Jesus too, but you still have to fulfill the law. They really feel like this is right, and they feel like this is what Scripture would direct them to do. So verse 2. And they're saying you cannot be saved unless you are circumcised. Again, you really need to read all of Galatians to uh, get the gist of what's going on here. And the Apostle Paul in the opening, I I don't mean to sound redundant here, but at this point, the Apostle Paul declares anathemas against the Judaizers. Here's what he says, Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. He says to the churches in Galatia, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, a different good news. Not that there is another, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be anathema, damned, accursed. That's what it says. And if you think that's strong, well, go on to read where Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. Yeah. Yeah, it gets really strong there in the book of Galatians. So if you want to understand what's going on in Acts chapter 15, you want a more careful understanding of the theology that's being debated there, well, you read the book of Galatians. That's where it goes. Okay, we continue. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate within them, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to get that subtext, do you? No small dissension and debate, which means this is a knockdown drag out. People are angry. This is a heated, heated discussion among genuine people who love Jesus and love each other, I presume. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question, community, to discuss this question. Now, no, what he, notice what he did there. I got to back this up because you, you got to pay real close attention because this is sneaky. Okay, listen again. To discuss this question, community. To di- he, he inserted the word community. Okay. It's not there in the text. This isn't about coming together as a community. This is about having the issue discussed by those who hold the apostolic 
office, the apostles. Okay, This is why Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, first and foremost puts out his apostolic credentials. So this isn't about community. This is about the apostles. To discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. So they, went, so they were sent on their way by the church, and as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they reported the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers. Now note how the problem gets started. The reason this becomes an issue is because these early church leaders, these early Christians, are going around and giving a testimony of how they see God by His Spirit working in these new believers. Hey, look, these guys are not even Jews. They're not good law abiders, but they're encountering Jesus just like we did. And I think what's implicit here is that they were experiencing the Spirit the same way people were in the book of Acts. Look, They've been saved. Look, they've been healed. Look, they're operating in supernatural signs and wonders. Now, here's his argument. Let me kind of lay this out for you. You're going, what is he doing? Let me explain to you what he's doing. Real simple. He's arguing, well, look here, the, the Jerusalem council that is recorded for us in Acts chapter 15, some of the arguments that were brought up at the council, they were based upon personal experiences. Right. Yes, they were. They were based upon personal experiences as well as the word of God. Correct. And who was it that rendered the verdict at the council? The apostles. Okay. We don't have any apostles today. Not a one. Okay. So here's the idea is that all of scripture, if you're familiar with the writings of the Bible, you will notice the, the entire Bible from beginning to end is chock full of documenting people's personal experiences. Yep, it's absolutely true. Okay, did Noah have a personal experience, hear the voice of God? Yes, he did. Absolutely. What did he do? He built a very large ark, and and the flood came, and he experienced the flood from within the ark, right? Uh, As well as the animals and everything else. David, did he have an experience where he was the anointed king of Israel, and uh, and, uh, he saw the giant Goliath? Yep. In fact, did you do if you notice something about David's argument there? Okay, when David was debating within himself about what to do with the the giant Goliath, it, actually he wasn't even a debate. He just basically said, "Listen, you know, I've been a shepherd boy and I I've killed bears and lions and God gave me the ability to do that. He's going to give me the ability to do, you know, to take out this uncircumcised Pharisee as well." Right on. That so his argument wasn't based upon a scripture, it was based upon his previous experiences. Right? Right. Okay, that being the case then, okay, the scriptures record for us the, the experiences of other people that then are inspired by the Holy Spirit and recorded in scripture to prepare us for every good work, to show us what God's will is, to confront us with our sins and comfort us with the gospel. They all point us to Christ and they're all inspired by God, the Holy Spirit, and our experiences do not rise to the level of scripture, plain and simple. No matter how you slice it, our experiences don't do this. So basically, all of Scripture is chock full of experiences. So we would be wise then to take heed of the words given by none other than the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter, remember, he had quite a religious experience. He, James, and John, 
went on up a mountain with Jesus and he was transfigured before their eyes. He had a major experience with God. And what did he do? Well, let's take a look at what Peter says we need to consider when it comes to experience versus the written word of God. Here's what he says. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Peter writes, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Notice Peter here is pointing to his experiences. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp to the sh uh, shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So does Peter point us to our own experiences? No. He says to pay close attention to the Scriptures, to the Word of God. So all of Scripture contains all kinds of per people's personal experiences. No doubt about it. And the apostles were are in a league that is way different than us. They're similar to and yet different from the Old Testament prophets. They, the apostles, well, they were trained directly by Jesus. Even Paul received his gospel directly from Jesus. And they had an apostolic authority. They were the sent ones, the ones sent by Jesus. They were the ones who were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. They were there when he performed the miracles and gave his teachings. And so we weren't there. We didn't have those experiences. And so they have an authority, and they have experiences that we don't have, but what we do have is everything we need in order to prepare us for every work that God has called us to do. Scripture itself says this about itself. We read in Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, here's what it says. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work, every good work. So we don't have the, um, the experiences that the apostles had. We don't have Noah's experience. We don't have Abraham's experience. We don't have Joseph's experience. We don't have Moses's experience, David's experience, Solomon's experience, uh, you know, and the list goes on and on and on. But their experiences are recorded, and when they're recorded in Scripture, that's inspired by God the Holy Spirit. And these things are there as a testimony so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ and by trusting in him have life in his name. So you get what I'm saying? So scripture is completely sufficient according to scripture. But we continue with Jonathan Martin as he's trying to use Acts 15 to prove that scripture isn't sufficient. We need more than scripture. Here we go. The same things that have happened to us are happening to them. They are giving a testimony and, and, and a story of an experience as to how God is working. So for my brother on the radio show. Yeah, that's me. They are using the wrong hermeneutical method. Uh, right, because they're apostles. <laughs> that's the idea. Uh, in their apostolic office, 
they have they have access to resources none of us have because they sat at the foot of Jesus and heard his entire t- preaching and teaching over three years. They're eyewitnesses to the resurrection, and uh, and so they are speaking from their apostolic office, and what they say then becomes scripture. Because they're not starting with scripture. They're not starting with the text. They're right. They're in the process of actually creating it here. They're starting with the story and testimony of the experience, which we all know proper Christians cannot do because the guy on the radio says this. So anyway, uh, show me a living apostle and then uh, we can talk. But again, they're, they're, this is recorded for us. This is what the apostle said. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And by saying that the church is apostolic, we follow the apostolic doctrine. Plain and simple. This is apostolic doctrine being created as we're, you know, in, in this text, as we read it. When they came to Jerusalem, verse 4, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. Once again, testimony of how the Spirit is working in these lives. But some believers who belong to the sect of the Pharisees, good, devout Jews who want to honor and observe the law, you know, they stand up and they say, it is necessary for them to be circumcised and ordered to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met together to consider this matter in community. After there had uh, again, uh, no, it, it doesn't say in community. The apostles met. This is an apostolic church council. This has to do with office and authority. This has nothing to do with community. There had been much debate. Peter stood up and said to them, "My brothers." You know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles should hear the message of the good news and become believers. Verse 8, and God who knows the human heart testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith. Which, by the way, this is another event recorded for us in the Scriptures. Again, scriptures are chock full of people's experiences recorded for us for life, for doctrine, you know, for correction, teaching, rebuke. Yeah, you get what I'm saying here. He has made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why you are, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? In other words, we haven't done so great at keeping the law ourselves. Why are we putting it on these people? But note at this point, Peter is still arguing exclusively on the basis of testimony. Here's what we have seen God doing in these new Gentile Christians by the Scripture. And if we see the Holy Spirit... Yeah, and again, keep this in mind. What the Holy Spirit was up to, the, the apostles were very much in tune to it. Almost the same way, in fact, there's a similar way in which the prophets of old were in tune to what God was saying, the Holy Spirit. Again, Jesus sent these apostles. What they recorded for us is Scripture. You know, the New Testament, it's all written by apostles. You get, it's apostolic. We continue. The Spirit bringing the same kind of change and transformation in their lives that we've had in our lives. Why on earth would we want them to be circumcised? Has it argued from a Scripture yet? But here's where it goes. Verse 11, on the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Just uh, This is, again... Remember, the whole setup, I pointed this out at the beginning. There were Jews who were saying, unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. And here's the appeal then to the gospel, the gospel that Christ gave the apostles, including the apostle Paul. Listen again. 
Verse 11, on the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Okay, so there it is. So the reason why they're going to reject this is because this doctrine being brought by the Judaizers is contrary to the gospel they were given by Jesus. Plain and simple. Christ died for our sins. Yeah, okay. So there's the reason why they're rejecting it. In other words, the gospel itself here now becomes the standard and measure of a, of a, you know, against a false doctrine and a false gospel. And that gospel, by the way, is recorded for us in the apostolic record. It's there in the scriptures for us. Verse 12, the whole assembly kept silence and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told of all the signs and wonders, testimony, experience of the Spirit, as they told all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had finished speaking, James, this great leader in the early church, replies, My brothers, listen to me. Now watch this because I think this is fascinating. Simeon has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles to take from among them a people for his name. This agrees with the words of the prophets as it is written. Now James is bringing scripture into this. Pay close attention to what the text says. Again, when the, when the apostles are, are teaching authoritatively here, they're speaking scripture. Says and what the text does not say. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the dwelling of David, which has fallen. And from its ruins, I will rebuild it and I will set it up so that all the other peoples may seek the Lord even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. Thus says the Lord, who has been making these things known from long ago. Therefore, James says, I have reached a decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God. But we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. For in every city for generations past, Moses has had those who proclaim him, for he has been read aloud every, on, on every Sabbath in the synagogues. The reason I'm laughing when I read this is that James takes a fairly large leap here. Have you read Leviticus lately? And the disciples are trying to figure out what applies to these Gentile Christians. Yeah. Uh, wait a second. Again, if you want, to, uh, if you want an extensive look at the theology behind why this happened, read Galatians. Okay, if you want a primer on the proper distinction of law and gospel, read Romans. Okay, especially like the first eight or nine chapters, that gives you a great breakdown of law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins and the proper understanding of what the law is for. If you would like just a kind of a shot... Uh, in the arm about proper distinction of law and gospel, read Philippians chapter 3 against the Judaizers as well. Okay, The theology here, uh, yes, we have a bare-bones sketch of what happened in the council. We don't have a word-for-word secretary notes of, of the entire debate, but we do know the theology that's going on behind the scenes because we have Galatians, we have Romans, and we have Philippians 3. You get what I'm saying here? We continue. You know, the more that we talked about this, the more I think we just probably need to just tell them, don't be sexually immoral and don't eat things that have been strangled and are bloody. Ah, I think the rest is fine. (laughs) Kind of a large leap. You see what I'm saying? From what a lot of people would consider to be faithful Torah observance to this particular conclusion. I mean, he has gone a long way really quickly. Well, I think these are really the important thing. Let's not trouble them with the rest of the law. They're worshiping Jesus. They love Jesus. 
I think they're okay. Here's the thing that's most fascinating to me and the rhetorical question I want to pose to you. The text he reads from the prophet says, well, verse 17, so that all other peoples may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. Tell me what that text has to do with circumcision at all. It's not about circumcision. Does it reference circumcision in any way? The only thing that that text would corroborate is this. God from the beginning always had Gentiles in mind too. Again, Scripture interprets Scripture. So what do we know about this passage? Well, it's plain and simple. Read the other passages, Galatians, Romans. You get what I'm saying. We continue. He always wanted the light that he gave to the Jews to shine abroad to the whole world. The promise God made to Abraham through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The only thing that that text would seem to confirm is that God does, in fact, love the Gentiles and wants them to have the life that is in Christ Jesus that has been revealed first. Again, uh, James, uh, they point to the gospel right there in Acts 15 that we're saved by grace, not by works. So the text itself in Acts 15 shows that the gospel itself becomes the reason why they're rejecting the, uh, the law of Moses here and, and put, imposing it on people. Why? Because the purpose of the law is to show us our sin, not to justify us. To these Jewish believers. So here's my question for you. If all they had was scripture alone, how would you ever get to that conclusion? How on the basis of the text itself would you ever decide that Gentiles don't need to be circumcised? Uh, they got there because they had the direct revelation of Jesus. These are apostles speaking in an apostolic office. And what they were speaking is the word of God. You want to know what the apostles preached? You want to know what their doctrine is, what they taught? They've recorded it for us in the New Testament. It's there for us to read and to understand, to believe and apply. It would not happen. There is no way anyone ever using some sort of good historical critical method could take that text from the Old Testament and say this conclusively proves that Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. So what happened? Uh, again, the apostles are in a different office. Preachers and teachers of God's word today don't have that apostolic office. They have a teaching office. Their job is to preach the word, the apostolic doctrine recorded in Scripture, not to preach people's experiences. Got it? They took seriously the Spirit and how they saw the Spirit working experientially in the community. Uh, right. Again, these are apostles. They took seriously the text from the Old Testament. Yes, they did. And then instead of anybody privately on their own feeling like they can figure this out for themselves, they all come together in community to figure out what God is doing. No, they didn't come together in community. Again, this was an apostolic council. This was a meeting of the apostles, the leadership, those with a special call on their lives, with special promises given to them only. Spirit, Scripture, and community all have to come together to discern anything about the heart of God, to discern anything about the will of God. It requires the spirit. It requires the text. It requires the community. Amos Young will go so far as to say that if the text is not coupled together with the spirit and the community, the text cannot be itself because the text is not intended to be read alone. The text is not intended to be read in isolation. God intended, even in the Old Testament, for the biblical text to be interpreted in community. 
And God also intended that we would take seriously the experiential witness of the Spirit in terms of how we see God working in people's lives. So if you have the text, and even if you have good commentaries and lexicons, but you're not being attentive to the Spirit who inspires that text, and if you don't have the Christian community where our brothers and sisters have that same Spirit in them and sharpen us, because I know this, this is what's going to freak people out here. So you're saying that we can't make every decision entirely based on what Scripture says? Here's what I'm telling you. I am telling you that for those folks that say the Bible is the magic answer book and say that every answer to every question is in the Bible, I'm like, I don't know what kind of questions y'all have because I got a lot of questions that aren't answered directly in Scripture. So now you have the gist of the argument. Now let me tell you what this particular, quote, hermeneutical technique that uh, Jonathan Martin is advocating for, what it's responsible for. Um, In the uh, ELCA, this would be the people who are Lutheran in name only, the ELCA, uh, these are the liberal Lutherans, okay? What is their argument that God is now blessing same-sex marriage? Answer, well, real simple. You know, we are engaged with the biblical text in community and believe that God the Spirit is doing a new thing. And so we're being led by the Spirit as we appreciate what God has recorded for us in the Bible, and we've interpreted as a community to come to the conclusion that the new thing that the Spirit is doing is blessing same-sex marriages. Yep, that's exactly the argument that they use. And that's how they argue for uh, how the Bible's to be understood. So if you buy into this idea, well, we've got to... Look at the scripture. We have to interpret it in community and then bring into it people's experiences based upon what the spirit is doing in their lives and within them. Well, this is the uh, this opens the door literally to the same type of stuff that leads to the blessing of same sex marriages within Christianity or, um, well, bringing women into ordained pulpit preaching, teaching ministry, contrary to what scripture says. This is exactly the hermeneutic that leads to that. This is the hermeneutic of liberalism. This is the hermeneutic of the emergent church. And Jonathan Martin is now one of the major advocates and outspoken voices for this false hermeneutic, trying to use Scripture to argue for the insufficiency of Scripture. Yeah, this leads to absolute chaos and apostasy. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back, heading down to New Spring Church for a sermon called Redneck. Yeah, I know. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. If everybody had 
Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Come in. What was I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Palm with my trusty double-barreled nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. They're not limited to just games, mind you. Oh, no! I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. We're going to be reviewing a new spring sermon without Harry Noble. That's uh, just what's been going on there, you know? I think he's down in yet the uh, big youth thing that their church puts on every year called Gauntlet. I would never send my kid to a thing called Gauntlet. I'm afraid they'd be sawn in half. All right, let's do this right. The good, the bad, and, uh, well, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's um, sermon comes to us via New Spring Church, Anderson, South Carolina. Clayton King presiding. The name of said um, sermon is entitled Redneck, Wild at Heart. You just can't make this stuff up anymore. Anyway, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and just skip all the rest of the formalities. We, we're way long on our program today. This is not a short sermon, so let me kill the music. Without any further ado, here's Clayton King, the hatchet man for, uh, for Perry Noble, and his sermon entitled Redneck, Wild at Heart. Here we go. So, 
Not only is New Spring the only church that can pull off a series called Redneck, but it's the only church where people will applaud and clap and scream just at the trailer. for. Define the word church. When you say New Spring Church, I don't see anything that makes New Spring a church. The Redneck Series. And when I say trailer, I mean the video. So the folks down there in Anderson are celebrating their redneckiness. Got it. What is up? I cannot believe I get to be the teaching pastor at this church. So, So when Pastor Perry called me up and said, hey, we're doing a series called Redneck. I'm like, of course we are. He said, I want you to start the series. I said, what are you trying to say about me? He said, I want you to start the series and you can go any direction you want to go. And I started thinking, like, how would I, how would I kick off a series called Redneck? Will that even work? Now, before anybody at any campus wants to even question if a series called Redneck will work, can I tell you right off the bat, less than one minute into this sermon, That in our first service today, we've already seen at every location, 115 people trust Christ. For what? Trust Christ for what? So, okay, we're going to hear the same sermon that was preached earlier, that 100 people now are trusting Christ because of the redneck sermon. Hmm, I thought people trust Christ because of they've been, well, confronted with their sin and called to repent and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Jesus is merciful. He is kind. And he does want us to repent. And he does want us to be forgiven. So will this redneck sermon confront people with their sins? Will it placarded Christ and him crucified for our sins as the only solution to our sin problem and the consequences of our sin? Well, we're going to find out. Here's more of Clayton King. Crossing that line from death to life. So I started thinking, uh, what would I start off with? I could, you know, I could recycle some, some old Jeff Foxworthy jokes. I mean, we've all heard the, you might be a redneck if, you know, you might be a redneck if your wife has ever said to you, honey, can you please move the transmission out of the bathtub so I can take a shower? <laughs> some of y'all can't relate to that. Um, then I thought, well, maybe, maybe I could, um, you know, play some old YouTube video clips of rednecks doing stupid things that injure their bodies, you know, accidentally setting themselves on fire, trying to put a a saddle on a a 10-point buck um, and ride it like a horse or maybe jumping off of a roof into a swimming pool and missing it. But I thought, no, we've we've already seen all those video clips. And I was just trying to think of what I could do to kick off the the Redneck series. And I was sitting in my study where I spend time with Jesus every day and where I read my Bible and where I prepare sermons and where I've written all eight of my books. And I just started looking around my office at my house where I live. And there were things within arm's reach of where I was sitting that I thought would be a a great way to kick off the series. And so I put them in a cardboard box and I brought them here today to share with you. Here are a few things that will help you understand a little bit about me as a person and kind of where I come from. See, I am from Fountain Inn, South Carolina. This is not just a pocket knife. This is a red man chewing tobacco pocket knife. Now, it is not good for you to chew tobacco. I discourage you from chewing tobacco. You will die. But let me tell you about my red man pocket knife. This red man pocket knife was given to me by my father. 
my father got this red man pocket knife because red man has a, um, well, they have a loyalty program. It's a rewards program, kind of like frequent flyer miles. So my dad bought like 14 pallets of red man chewing tobacco. And if you bought 14 pallets and 186 cases of red man and you kept all of the proofs of purchase, they sent you a pocket knife. So my dad gave me this red man pocket knife, which I accidentally had in my computer bag one day as I went to the airport to fly to preach in Texas. I flew out of the Greenville-Spartanburg International Airport. Now, you might be a redneck if you carry your pocket knife with you accidentally to the airport, but you are a bigger redneck if you are the TSA agent who works for the federal government that said to me when he found the pocket knife in my computer bag, well, you look like a pretty good old feller and you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ anyway. So just don't get caught with it again. Stick it in the bottom of your bag. I'll let this and slide. That's a true story. Yeah, that makes me feel safe when I get on an airplane. Remind me to avoid whatever airplane, uh, airline, airport he flies out of. The idea of a new spring pastor carrying a pocket knife on an airplane scares me. Now... Part of my childhood, part of my childhood was spent going to watch pro wrestling. What you may or may not know is that pro wrestling is not fake. Everybody keeps saying it's fake. No, it's not. It's choreographed, but it's not fake. Just ask the 112-year-old women that used to sit on the front row with their walkers on Monday night at the Greenville Memorial Auditorium when I was a kid. This is the ultimate warrior. I collect wrestling action figures. They are not dolls. They are action figures. Let's get that straight. And, And I may or may not, as a kid, have painted my face up like the ultimate Warrior. I actually remember one of his vignettes when he was being interviewed by Vince McMahon on WWF. He said, as I sat upon the mountain, thinking about the... What does any of this have to do with God's word? Yeah, he's just celebrating his redneckiness. Got it, okay. Odyssey of the infinite cosmos. I was approached by the eternal equinox, and he told me that I must break you, Hulk Hogan. <laughs> now, did that seem fake to y'all? I didn't think so. Oh, it's getting better. It's getting better. Some of y'all gonna know this guy. Yep. You do realize there are regions in the country where I would show this action figure and people would say, who's that? But because we're in South Carolina and we're New Spring, you know who this is. The Nature Boy, Ric Flair. Limousine riding, jet flying, kiss stealing, mean son of a gun. Bright lights, big cities, pretty ladies. To be the man, you gotta beat the man. Woo! He signed this one. Yeah, I feel people being drawn closer to Jesus by the second. Not really. This has his autograph on it. 
And, and, and if now, I, you know, some people don't like the word redneck and you can judge whether or not you think I am one, but I wrote a song and sang a song about Ric Flair that John Boy and Billy still play on the John Boy and Billy Big Show about once a month. Yeah, you're welcome, world. Now, this is my prized possession. This is my greatest. Uh, it, his prized possession isn't his Bible. This is going to be really popular on YouTube. I'm just telling you right now. This is an original Bo Duke, eight-inch, fully posable figure. Now, this was um, 1981, so this thing's 32 years old because I used to watch the Dukes of Hazard, And some of y'all know it, don't you? You know, just the good old boys. Never meaning no harm. Come on, worship with me. Beats all you ever saw. Been in trouble with the law since the day they were born. Yep, y'all pagans. Can't believe y'all used to watch that trash. Um, but... My, my real favorite character was not Bo, it was Daisy. She was my girlfriend for a long time. She didn't even know it. Um, one more thing I need to show you. This Now, now I'm going to have to set this up. My wife and I and our two boys, we live out in the country. Uh, I would not consider myself a redneck. I would consider myself a country boy. But sometimes those terms can be interchangeable. And so we live on a, on a big tree farm, and we have pine trees. We bought this from an old pulpwood company. And we're managing these pine trees and having them thinned and selectively cut to pay for our kids to go to college one day. Um, and so back in March, we paid the state of North Carolina to come in and do a controlled burn to clear out all the underbrush. And when they burned the ground, it was amazing. The ground was bare and you could see all kinds of stuff. So we went on a hike. I was like, guys, I bet we can find all kinds of cool stuff because there were old homesteads on our property, old chimneys, uh, old, old farming equipment. And so we found plows. We found old, um, old pieces of metal from buckets. We found a foundation for an old house. We actually found an open well. Here's another thing that I found in the woods at my house. That, my friends, is moonshine. Redneck show and tell time there at New Spring. Oh, yeah, this is so spiritual. This is so Christian. That is the real deal. I know I did not drink it, and no, you cannot have it. <laughs> the top was rusted on it, and uh, I brought it home and washed it up because there used to be a moonshine still at my house. So I'm thinking, what in the world? Not mine. Not my moonshine still. I want to make sure everybody understands that. So I started thinking, what in the world could I, like, a series called Redneck, who, who would I preach about? Like, what, what passage would I use? Who in the Bible didn't care what other people thought about him? Looked a little odd. Was loud. Bold, unique, stood out, came out of the woods. Who in the Bible? Why do I feel like we're about to experience narcissistic eisegesis? Had an attitude of boldness and didn't care what anybody thought about him. And then it hit me. John the Baptist. The ultimate redneck. Got it. Okay. Turn to Mark chapter 1. I want to show you some things from the life of John the Baptist that I think we can all learn, whether you are a male or a female, because the whole point is not that you should be a redneck. You've got to be who you are, whether you are from, from the city or the country, whether you love big towns or living out in the middle of nowhere, whether you are from the north, the south, the east or the west. 
The point is you need to be who you are. Don't try to fake it. Don't try to be something you're not. But I want to show you one of the most unique characters in the whole Bible and how he was used by God to play a major role in the gospel. It says in Mark chapter... Yeah, John the Baptist did play a major role in the gospels, and that is he was the one prophesied in the Old Testament who would make straight the paths before the Lord, before his anointed, his holy one comes. So yeah, he's preparing the way for the Messiah, preaching repentance and forgiveness of sins and baptizing. Chapter one, I want to go ahead and read this to you. The first eight verses, you can look along on the screens at every location, or if you have a Bible with you, this is Mark chapter one, verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were flocking to him and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He was preaching, someone more powerful than I will come after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Point number one, a clear vision is formed in wild places. A clear Wait a second. Oh, man. Narcissistic eisegesis, otherwise known as narcissism. Now, if you don't know what that means, you know what narcissism is. It's self-love. And um, eisegesis means reading something into the biblical text that isn't there. So you're reading your self-love into the biblical text. The story of John the Baptist is not telling us some principle where great visions for people's lives uh, are formed in wild places. That's not what John's function is in Scripture. He's pointing us to Jesus. He still is pointing us to Jesus. To point us uh, to, oh, some grand vision for your life is to totally miss the point of the text. Clear vision is formed in wild places. This is so important. There are two people in the New Testament in the Gospels who are given this much uh, treatment, both in their role and in their death, and it's Jesus and John the Baptist. All four Gospels mention John the Baptist almost immediately in the first chapter or very soon in their Gospels. John had such an important part to play in Jesus coming on the scene and starting his ministry. Yeah, that's right. And his call to do his job as a prophet, um, it's not formed in a wild place at all. In fact, if you want the backstory on that, you read the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 1. And uh, I, I would, that's exactly where I would point you. Here's what it says. Um, uh, in, uh, verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5, Luke. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. 
but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and, he, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not fear, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So um, John's calling didn't, um, you know, this so-called vision for his life, which is, I think is a wrong way to discuss it. This is his calling and, and that which God created him for. And nowhere in Scripture does it say, oh, because John had this, well, therefore, you're going to have the same thing for your life. No, that's not a right application of this. But it wasn't formed in wild places. Uh, this this directive came down via an angel from heaven while Zechariah was serving in the temple of the Lord, not while um, John the Baptist was out in the wilderness. So Clayton King isn't even properly telling the story here of the story supposedly about how great vision can happen to you in the strange wild places. It wasn't a wild place at all where John's calling was revealed. It was revealed in the temple of God. But notice that when Mark introduces John the Baptist, he says that John came out of the wilderness. And there's actually a quote from the Old Testament book of Isaiah where, where he says, I'm a voice crying in the wilderness, a voice shouting in the wilderness. You know, rednecks a lot of times get accused of being loud and obnoxious. And yes, they can be. And some of you have been at sporting events or concerts where they have gotten a little out of hand. My first concert I ever went to, this is not a testimony. This is a confession. My first concert was at Little John Coliseum in Clemson, South Carolina. And the man I went to see, Bo Cephas. Hank Williams Jr. Yeah, he was so drunk that night. He took his shirt off on stage. I still have visions of that, that I'm trying to go to counseling to have removed from my brain. He had painted a big orange tiger paw on his, on his shirt. And I can remember as they were, my mom took me to that concert. My mom took me to see Hank Williams Jr. And all these guys at the concert, all these good old boys, and they got a couple of beers in them. And man, their voices, they got obnoxious, they got loud, they got crazy. But what John does is John shows us that you can be loud and bold, but it doesn't take alcohol to get you there. It takes the right vision to get you there. If you've got a vision for something big, a vision for something that God has given you. This has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with God supposedly giving you a vision. Then it's okay to be bold and clear about that. But notice that John's vision was formed in a wilderness. That's why I say sometimes a clear vision is formed in wild places. But it wasn't. I just showed you that from Luke chapter 1. 
he lived in the Judean hill country. And that Judean hill country, if you think of it as a wilderness, don't think of it as like a forest or trees or the Yukon or the Alaskan wilderness. I've been there before. My wife and I will be back in Israel next spring. I'm telling you, the Judean wilderness is a desert wilderness. And a lot of times men would go out there and they would spend time alone with God. John the Baptist was probably a part of a group called the Qumran community. This is for just maybe for later study if you're interested in it. And they were ascetic and they loved to live alone, kind of like the monastic fathers in the New Testament church. And they would go out and they would fast and they would pray and they would practice ritualistic bathing to make sure that they were clean before the Lord. But all of a sudden, when the Gospels begin, they don't begin just with Jesus showing up. They begin with John showing up. John coming out of the wilderness and he's dressed like, like a guy out of the woods. He's dressed like a like a mountain man. He's wearing camel hair clothing. He's wearing a leather belt, which by the way, if you go to Isaiah 12, you can see that he is taking his dress, his wardrobe is identical to the Old Testament prophets. And when he comes out of the wilderness, he's preaching, prepare the way, get ready. The Messiah is coming. I am not the Messiah. I'm the one who is sent before him. I'm preparing the way. I am his advance team. So immediately we see John has a clear vision, but that clear vision came out of wild, uncontrollable places. How do you, how do you apply that to your life? Very simply, all of us go through seasons of our life where we're not in control. Tom's- Again, um, the story of John the Baptist isn't something you, quote, apply to your life. You believe his message. That's how you apply it. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. Repent. Be forgiven. That's, oh, man. This is not, John the Baptist's life is not some kind of a a template that then you look at his life and go, okay, God's going to do the exact same thing with me. He's going to give me a vision. Um, did, uh, did an angel of the Lord appear to your parents prior to your birth? No. John the Baptist's life is not a template for your life. Not in that way. It just seems like everything is spinning out of your control. Wild seasons. I've just gone through one. I've lost both my parents in the last three years. Some of you have gone through a divorce and that was your wild season. Some of you have gone through or are still going through addiction or alcoholism. Some of you are trying. Are you talking about sin now and not calling it sin? To to kick the, the addiction and the habit of pornography. It's got control over you. You can't stop. You're hiding it. You, you try to erase the history on your laptop. You always try to keep your phone locked so that nobody knows. Sometimes when we're in those wild places where something else is controlling us. and Now a wild place is a sin. The word wild place doesn't mean anything the way you're changing it. So uh, John the Baptist received his vision for his calling on his life while in a wild place. That means a sinful place. This is nonsense. And we're not in control. We think this is the last place God will ever come find me. This is the last place I'll ever hear God speak to me. This is the last place I will ever see God in real fashion. God is so far away from me right now. I'm depressed. I'm discouraged. I'm suicidal. I'm an alcoholic. I'm an addict. I'm popping pills. I'm, I'm running a scam. I'm a total fake. My life is falling apart. My marriage is almost over. My kids are rebelling. My daughter may be pregnant. My son's sleeping around. My kid's smoking pot. My life is so out of control right now. And all of these are sins that Christ died for. Will we hear that? I hope so. But what I'm telling you is 
that John understood a clear vision emerges from, comes out of wild places, because when you've got nowhere else to go, when you've got nobody else to turn to, Jesus died for your sins. Repent and be forgiven. If you will look up, you will find God and he will be right there for you. Uh, You're not preaching Christ. You're talking about sin and telling sinners to just look up. No, you need to tell them that Jesus bled and died for them on the cross and then rose again from the grave. And you can have the clearest vision of your life and for your future that you've ever had when you simply realize this. So salvation is finding a clear vision for your future rather than being forgiven of your sins. This isn't the gospel. This is a false purpose-driven gospel. When God is all you have, you see that God is all you need. When, when, oh, oh man, this is so shallow and ridiculous. God's the only one who's there. When God is all you have, you will see that God is all you need. When John shows up in Mark chapter one, preaching the gospel, telling people to get ready for Jesus, he's not running for office. He's not trying to get votes. He's not trying to win a popularity contest. He is not going out for varsity football. He is not trying to get his way into college. He's not filling out applications for jobs. He has a clear vision. And his vision is this, the son of God is coming and I am preparing the way. Get ready to repent. A clear vision comes out of wild places like that. Uh, Okay. Repent of what? Repent of your sins. Be forgiven. We actually preach that part, please. Because that's what this message is about. Hey, I've been a part of New Spring since before it started. My friendship with with our senior pastor goes back a decade before new spring ever began, but God gave our pastor a clear vision to, to create a church where lost people could come and hear the gospel, where we don't fake it, where we don't pretend, where we don't put up pretenses, where there are no perfect people allowed. And I'm telling you for this church to get where it's at today, all over South Carolina, all over the world, every campus, 115 people got saved in the first service in a series called redneck. How does that happen? Yeah. I'd like to know how that happened. If this was the message they heard, cause they're not being confronted with their sins and, Hearing that Christ bled and died for the forgiveness of their sins. Um, I Yeah, you've turned the story of John the Baptist into, oh, you can have a big vision for your life and it'll come to you in a wild place. That's not the gospel and that's not what this text teaches. It doesn't just fall out of the sky. People pay prices for big visions. People pay a price for a clear vision from God and it requires seasons in the wilderness. It requires days when you don't want to get out of bed and you have to rely on the Holy Spirit to get you up. It requires moments where you don't know where to turn and in desperation, you close the door of your bedroom, you fall on your knees beside your bed and you throw your hands up and say, God, I need you right now or I'm not sure I can go on. That's how God gave a clear vision to John the Baptist. I mean, he's unlike anybody you've ever seen in scripture. A couple other things, you may want to write this down. He was not the first one to spend time in the wilderness. This is a pattern. A clear vision always comes from wilderness experiences. How about Moses? Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness and he thought he was running from something because he had killed an Egyptian taskmaster and he ran away before he got caught. 
But what was actually happening is that God was teaching Moses for 40 years. Moses was a shepherd in the Judean wilderness. Why did God allow that to happen to Moses? Because he wanted Moses to know where every hill, where every valley, where every pass and where every path was, where every mountaintop, where every spring, where every creek and where every watering hole was. Why? Because for another 40 years, Moses was going to be leading the Jews away from Egypt into the promised land. It was all preparation. So when you find yourself in the wilderness, don't assume that God has abandoned you. God may be preparing you for what's next. Jesus also spent time in the wilderness and he emerged with a clear vision. Moses goes to the wilderness for 40 years. He sees God. in a- So now Moses is just a template for your life too, huh? Right. Okay. So yeah, you can have a clear vision just like Moses did burning bush. God speaks to him in a burning bush, gives him a clear vision. Go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses goes and does it. Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan river. Then he's led away into the desert where for 40 days and 40 nights, he prays and fasts and he's tempted by the devil and he resists Satan because he knew that he was loyal to his heavenly father. He comes out of the desert and he begins preaching a clear vision. Jesus Christ was born to die. He knew that that's why he was born. He knew that that's why his father had sent him into this world. So do why did he need to die? What did his death accomplish? Are we going to hear those details or are we just going to hear that Jesus also had a vision for his life? Not waste your wilderness. What on earth are you talking about? I have to back this up just a smidge because I want to hear this again in context. Out of the desert and he begins preaching a clear vision. Jesus Christ was born to die. He knew that that's why he was born. He knew that that's why his father had sent him into this world. So do not waste your wilderness. Don't waste your wilderness. It's ridiculous. Now he's completely allegorized wilderness. What does wilderness mean in the context of John came out of the wilderness? Answer, it means he came out of the wilderness, you know, the dry desert wilderness area. And now he's allegorized it to mean, oh, a sinful period in your life. It's not what that means at all. You know what wilderness means in that context in Mark? It means wilderness. Don't waste your wilderness. It's not wasted time. It's preparation. You are in a wilderness right now. Then look up. Open your eyes. What are you talking about? If by wilderness you mean they're caught in sins, they need to repent and be forgiven, not look up. God, what are you trying to tell me? How are you trying to prepare me? What are you trying to show me? Give me a clear vision in this wilderness because we may think God's punishing us, but he's actually preparing us in those wilderness times because sometimes when you're in wild places, all the other distractions are gone. There's no noise. There's no body. There's nothing to be done. There's there's just you and the wilderness and the voice of God. Number two, a bold message emerges from personal experience. What? Oh, man. Um, We already have a bold message. It's called the Bible. A bold message emerges from personal experience. I've had personal experience going to Clemson Tiger football games in Death Valley. 
Therefore, I boldly proclaim the message of how awesome it is to go to a Clemson Tiger football game in Death Valley. I, I've had personal experience with sushi. It's delicious. I want to eat some right now. So I boldly proclaim to you the goodness of sushi. I've read every page of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Therefore, I boldly proclaim what a fantastic book or books Tolkien wrote. I have been to five U2 concerts. I've experienced the greatness of U2. Therefore, I boldly proclaim U2 is the greatest band ever. Apologies to all you Beatles fans. The Beatles broke up. U2 is still together. Booyah! See, when you have personal experience with something, doesn't matter if people agree with you or not. You proclaim it, right? You proclaim it. That's how John the Baptist was about Jesus. He had personally experienced the goodness of Jesus Christ. And it starts, believe it or not, before he was even born. Turn to Luke chapter one. Just like Mark starts off his gospel with John the Baptist, Luke starts off his gospel in the first chapter with a story about John the Baptist. Let me set this up for you. Mary, the mother of Jesus, gets the message from the angels, which did not sound like good news when she got it. Hello, young virgin girl who has never had sex with a man. You are going to get pregnant and the baby will be God's. Can you imagine getting that email from the Lord? I've chosen you to give birth to my son. So Mary gets the message from the angel. The Holy Spirit comes upon her. She is pregnant with Jesus. She has a distant cousin named Elizabeth. Elizabeth, much like Sarah and Abraham in the Old Testament, Elizabeth and her husband, Zechariah, were older in age. They had tried to have children, could not conceive, could not have a son. When she gets the message, and Zechariah as well, they get the message, you're going to have a son. So you have two miraculous birth stories, two miraculous baby stories. And since they are cousins and since they are distantly related, Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. Mary has Jesus in her womb. Elizabeth has John the Baptist in her womb. They are not even born yet. Watch what happens. Luke chapter one, verse 39. In those days, Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside her and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she exclaimed with a loud cry, you are the most blessed of women and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside of me. She who has believed is blessed because of what was spoken to her by the Lord will be fulfilled. So Mary walks into Elizabeth's home. They are both pregnant. Mary with Jesus, Elizabeth with John the Baptist. The power, the anointing, the spirit that was in Mary's womb that had anointed Jesus was so strong that John the Baptist recognized Jesus felt Jesus, sensed Jesus, experienced Jesus in utero, in the womb. 
What? Some of y'all are like, how can a baby experience that? That's crazy. That makes yeah, um, I'm not sure what your point is. Makes no sense. I can't believe that. How could you believe that a baby, not even born yet, because, you know, our country, our culture doesn't really call them babies anymore. They're fetuses, right? It's a lot easier to abort a fetus than to murder a child. I might need to come back and preach that sermon some Sunday. I might need to come back and just get fired up about, I'll do it another time, not now. Help me, Holy Spirit. Mary, Elizabeth, Jesus in the womb, John the Baptist in the womb. Jesus enters the room. John the Baptist experiences the presence of God. God in a mother's belly. And John the Baptist goes buck, wild, red, neck, crazy, up in his mama's belly. Let me out. I want to see him. I want to preach about him. Let me out. Um, that's not what's recorded in the text. It just says that he leaped. And was filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, it doesn't say let me out and all that kind of stuff. That's just creepy weird what you're adding to the text. I got to get out. I got to see my cousin. I'm losing my mind up here. Because this is how I feel every time I preach the gospel. Can you tell? I get a little excited. And I've only had a half a cup of regular coffee today. So don't blame it on the caffeine. John the Baptist is losing his mind. Why? Because when you experience anything good, you enjoy it. Some of us need to be a little more, can I say this? Sure I can. This is New Spring. Some of us need to be a little more redneck in the way that we experience Jesus. What do I mean by that? Quit trying to be so reserved. So now we got John the Baptist leaping in the womb of his mother and, and your conclusion, your takeaway from this is we need to be less, we need to be more redneck in how we experience Jesus. Hi. I mean, if my microphone wasn't attached to a stand, I would be dropping it right now in complete horror and disbelief. What a nonsensical, ridiculous thing to say. Quit trying to be so classy. Quit trying to be so pretty. Quit trying to be so perfect. And just... How is it that anyone was brought to repentant faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins as a result of this sermon? Always claiming a hundred people were brought to Jesus at New Spring because of this particular redneck sermon. Yeah, I'm not seeing it. Let yourself go. Throw your hand up sometime. Doesn't matter if you've been sweating and your armpits have got stains in them. Throw your hands up. Clap sometime. If you want to, stand up in the middle of a sermon and talk to the preacher. It gets lonesome up here sometimes. I like to hear back from you every once in a while. Hey, get, get, pull out a handkerchief and wave it at a preacher sometime. Quit trying to be so refined and educated. So what? You got a degree. That's awesome. But sometimes we got to be a little more like the little baby John the Baptist. When Jesus enters the room, lose your mind. There's Jesus. Oh, my goodness. Jesus is here. Oh, my gosh. I can't. Oh, my God. Literally. Oh, my God. Jesus is God. Oh, my God, Jesus. You're here. So now we have John the Baptist and um, Clayton King's retelling of this story from Luke. Um, blaspheming the name of God and taking God's name in vain, what, three, four times here while he's in utero. Yeah, like that's what happened. 
Come on, brother. See, that's what I'm talking about right there. That's what I'm talking about. Come here, come here, come on. Give me some. Give me some right there on the front row. My man, my man, John the Baptist experienced Jesus. And because he did, he had a bold message. You couldn't shut him up. You couldn't shut him down. You couldn't stop John the Baptist. That sounds like a good old boy right there, doesn't it? That sounds like a good old girl. That sounds like somebody like, that's, that sounds like a mama. You ain't touching my baby. Right? He knew. He knew who Jesus was. He recognized Jesus the first time he encountered him. And he kept on recognizing Jesus. We don't have time, but you can read in John's gospel. First time we see John the Baptist. The first time we encounter him in John's gospel, different John. John's writing about John the Baptist and John the Baptist shows up and says, behold the Lamb of God. That's King James. Basically, look, hey, all of you guys that are following me, all of my disciples, all of the guys who want to be like me, okay, don't follow me anymore. Follow him. Look, there he is. The one I've been talking about. Look, there he is. Go follow him. Go. Yeah, I was getting excited there. I was thinking he was going to accidentally like, you know, give us a gospel nugget because John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's how that line goes. Let's see if Clayton King actually gets to that part. Go hang out with him. Go learn from him. Go do what he says. Go, Go do everything you see him do. I am not the Christ. They even sent a delegation from the Pharisees to go out and ask John in the wilderness where he was baptizing. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one we've been waiting on? Are you the one that came to save us? Did you come to beat up the Romans and cleanse our country and rebuild the temple? Are you the one? Because if you are the one, we want to follow you. And John the Baptist clearly said, I am not the one, but one is coming. He's even here now. And my job is to prepare you for him. John kept experiencing Jesus. And some of us are satisfied to just get saved. What? John kept experiencing? What does that mean? What are you talking about? Saved and stop right there. If that's you, if you're satisfied to just get saved and stop right there, because I meet people like that all the time, especially... Yeah, I've never met a single Christian who's just satisfied to get saved and just, you know, whatever right there. Never heard of that kind of person, ever. Never met that person. In the South, right? Everybody's a Christian in the South. Oh, yeah. Everybody's been to church a couple of times. Everybody had a new Easter dress when they were a little girl. Every boy got a new Easter outfit. Everybody's been to church on Thanksgiving or Christmas or went with grandma. Everybody's got a pastor in their family somewhere. Everybody thinks they're a Christian in the South. But if you are satisfied to just get saved and stop, I question if you were ever really saved. Because listen, Jesus doesn't just want decisions. Jesus wants disciples. Jesus doesn't just want to get you out. La, 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 la. Where's the gospel? What have you done with this? Again, how did a hundred people get saved here? Hearing this out of hell, he wants to get heaven into you and you into the world because found people find people. If you have been found by the grace of God, you will automatically be like John. The- Why don't you tell me more about that grace of God stuff? Because you keep avoiding it from the biblical text that you are just basically skipping along the surface of the Baptist. You'll want to go out and find other people who need to find the grace of God because found people find people. John the Baptist kept experiencing Jesus. Again, what text talks about John the Baptist keeping on experiencing Jesus? I'm not familiar with those texts. And I've translated literally 
all four of the Gospels from Greek into English. That's why I kept preaching about Jesus. Number three, a strong identity comes from knowing your role. A strong identity comes from knowing your role. What on earth are you talking about? A strong identity comes from knowing your role. That's one of the things I loved about growing up in the country in Simpsonville and Fountain. So we're going to hear more about your life. Got it. Okay. Fountain Inn, where I'm from. I grew up in a family and I grew up around friends and people that did not try to fake it. No pretense. They didn't try to be something they were not. They never tried to, to put on a show. They never tried to put on a, a play for anybody. It was never, ever play acting. They were just real, honest to goodness people. They knew their identity. And a strong identity comes when you know your role. John the Baptist knew his role. In Mark chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, we already read them. I'll read them to you again. John the Baptist was preaching, Someone more powerful than I will come after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. You know, John the Baptist preached Jesus. The apostles preached about Jesus. Why don't you do that? Stop preaching about yourself and trying to find little principles in the, you know, the template of John's life that you can somehow apply to you because it doesn't. What applies to you is the message that John the Baptist preached, that you need to repent and you need to be forgiven. He knew his role. John the Baptist knew he wasn't the front man. He wasn't the lead singer of this band. He had a role to play. His role was not front and center. His role was backstage. He was front and center for a short season, and then he disappeared. He knew that his role was not to have the spotlight on him, but rather to shine the spotlight on Jesus. Why don't you do what he did then and show us Jesus? As a matter of fact, my favorite Bible verse, I sign this if people sometimes ask me to sign a book or a Bible. I always write John 3.30. John the Baptist said in John 3.30, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. Well, that's weird because I've learned more about Clayton King in this so-called redneck sermon than I have learned at all about Jesus in this sermon. I mean, based upon just the sheer number of minutes preached about Clayton King, I mean, I would think that Clayton King was the Messiah. He must become greater. I must become less. He must be bigger. I must become smaller. I must give him the priority and the preeminence. And I must take a back seat. See, that's the role. That's the role that John played. My dad was um, an amazing man. You've heard me talk about my dad a lot. He was a farmer and he owned an electric motor repair shop. Now, this is a good, this is a good story. I didn't think about this until this morning in the first service. So my dad had some employees and they had good names, funny names. Some have been in jail. One of them had burned down a couple of houses. One of the guys that used to work for my dad, this is kind of, this is kind of rednecks my dad used to employ. This guy worked for my dad and he was a pyromaniac. That means he liked to blow stuff up and burn stuff. And he, and he got caught burning a house down and the judge put him in jail. And he told the judge that I cannot verify that this story is true, but this is what the men used to say at the shop. He told the judge at the trial, if you lock me up the day I get out of jail, I'm going to burn your house down when you're not there. And magically, the day that he got out of jail, the judge's house burned to the ground while he was at the grocery store. I'm just saying. So my dad had some good old boys that worked with him. He was their boss. He knew his role. His role was the boss. Their role was to do what he told them to do. So one day, 
got into an argument with one of his employees. I was 10, sweeping. That was my job. Yep, my parents practiced child abuse. They made me work. So I'm sweeping and Butch and my dad get into an argument. That was really his name, Butch. And Butch said, Joe, I don't think that'll work. And my daddy said, yes, it will. And Butch said, no, it won't. And I'll tell you why. Daddy said, no, you don't need to tell me why. I'm smarter than you. It'll work. Do it my way. And Butch said, what if it breaks? My dad said, then I'll be responsible for it. And Butch said, I don't know, Joe. I just don't know. And my dad said, I know, I know. You don't know, but I do know. Because see, here at Electric Service, we operate on the gold plan. And Butch said, the gold plan? What's the gold plan? And my daddy said, I've got all the gold, so I make all the plans. So now we've heard more about Clayton King and his father, Butch, than we heard about Jesus. And yet he says that he likes John the Baptist's idea that Jesus must increase and John the Baptist must decrease. Yeah, I agree. Clayton King needs to decrease and so does Butch. And we need to hear about Jesus because that's who we're not hearing about. And yet a hundred people got saved from this so-called message. Some of us need to get on God's gold plan. He calls us to do certain things. We assume the role he gives to us. We don't get to pick it. Now, we're not talking about, you know, God tells us things he expects us to do. You know, thou shalt not kill, steal, commit adultery, covet. Uh, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Uh, you know, honor your father and mother, stuff like that. He's not talking about that. He's talking about some unique individual purpose that God has for your life. That's what he's talking about. God picks the role. You can read 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, and you can see how we are all part of one body, and each one of us has a role to play. John knew that his role was to serve. His role was to take that place of inferiority, to be down low like a servant that would untie a master's sandals. I like to put it this way. You may want to write this down. Don't try to be something you're not. Quit trying to be somebody you're not. Ladies, quit trying to be a woman that God never meant for you to be. I, and I know, I know that there's lots of insecurity that we all struggle with. But ladies, can I talk to you? Every campus, every location. I'm your pastor today. So can I talk to you like a pastor? Can I talk to you like a brother? Women. Hey, I know that some of you, not all of you, but I know that some of you obsess over being skinny. Can I speak for almost every single guy within the sound of my voice? Whether you're skinny or whether you're a big girl, we love you just like you are. And I personally like my wife with some meat on her bones. So quit comparing yourself to an airbrushed supermodel on the cover of a magazine who would really love to eat a cheeseburger. Uh, again, uh, no repentance, no forgiveness of sins, no Christ in him crucified for our sins. Um, you need to find your purpose, know your place, and uh, get a vision like John the Baptist had. Yeah, this Bible doesn't teach any of this. Be yourself. Quit trying to be something you're not. I will never be a politician. I'm not running for office. I preach the gospel. Yeah, you're never going to be a preacher of sound doctrine in the gospel either, although you're saying you're a preacher of the gospel. I haven't heard it yet. I'm never going to be a banker because I wouldn't wear a suit all day if my life depended on it. The only time I'm going to wear a suit all day is when I'm dead and they put me in a suit in a coffin. That's not who I am. Be who you are. Quit trying to be who you're not. Here's another one. Don't assume a position you couldn't handle in the first place. John the Baptist knew I'm, I'm not the Messiah. 
I can't save anybody. My blood can't purify from iniquity. Jesus's can. So why don't you preach about Jesus the way John the Baptist did? My death can't cleanse from sin. I can't raise the dead. I can't make the lame walk. I can't make blind people see. He knew better than to assume a position he could not handle. Know your role. Here's another one. Don't aspire to be in a place you're not prepared for yet. Don't aspire to be in a... This passage is not about you. It's about Jesus. A place you're not prepared for yet. When I travel, I'm going to talk about this a lot more in two weeks. But when I travel, people know about my friendship with Perry. They know I'm teaching pastor here. And pastors and leaders will always ask me, man, what's Perry's secret? What's Perry's secret? What's y'all's secret at New Spring? How have y'all grown to, you know, eight campuses and 50,000 people at Easter? What's the secret? What's the secret? What's the simple? You scratch itching ears and don't preach sound doctrine. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Second uh, Timothy chapter four tells us all about it a secret. And honestly, here's a secret. We all know our role and here's what it is. Anything other than Jesus Christ. He's the star. He is the man. No, he's not. I've listened to so many Perry Noble sermons. You know who the star of Perry Noble sermons are? Perry Noble. Just like, you know who the star of Clayton King's sermon here? Clayton King. He's giving lip service to Jesus while not preaching him we look to. He is the source. He is all beauty. He is all grace. He is all mercy. He is all power. He is our salvation. Well, if he's all of that, why aren't you preaching him? And we just do everything else except try to be. Now you're preaching yourself again. Be him. We know our role. This is what I want to encourage you with. Don't aspire to be in a place that you're not prepared for. John never, ever tried to one up Jesus. He knew his role. Number four. A great testimony flows from faithfulness. A great testimony flows from faithfulness. Turn to Luke chapter 7. A great testimony flows from faithfulness. There is nobody in the Bible who has a better testimony than John the Baptist, except for the Lord Jesus. I want to read to you. Something about John the Baptist that may boggle your mind. Some of you have seen this before, but if you haven't, Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. After John's messengers left, he, Jesus, began to speak to the crowds about John. So Jesus is talking about his cousin, John the Baptist, the long-haired redneck who ate locusts and wild honey and wore a leather belt and a camel skin jacket who lived in the Judean hill country and wouldn't take, he was nobody's boy, nobody's boy. Here's what Jesus says about his own cousin, John the Baptist. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft robes? Look, those who are splendidly dressed and live in luxury, they're in royal palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and far more than a prophet. This is the one that it is written about. Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. And that's Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 they're quoting there. John's role to go before Jesus, to prepare the way for Jesus, to get people ready for the coming of the kingdom of God. And then pay attention to verse 28. Jesus said, I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John, but the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. In the original Greek, it literally says, greatest man ever born, greatest man to ever live. So here, pay attention, listen, listen. The greatest man who ever lived said that John the Baptist was the greatest man that ever lived. 
What in the world does it take for Jesus to call you the greatest that ever lived? What is it? What is it about John the Baptist that made him so great? I'll tell you what it was, real simple. He was faithful to his one thing. He knew his one thing. He knew his role and he was faithful. Never deviated, never got off the mark, never went off the page, never left script, stayed focused. He stayed put where God had called him to be. Why? Because early on, he got a clear vision and a bold message. You see that, right? You see how that works. He knew it's not me, it's him. And he stayed there for his entire life. He was faithful. Um, in two and a half, no, three weeks, uh, a little less than three weeks. You know, the apostle Paul had a pretty good testimony too. And here's what he writes at the end of his life. First Timothy chapter one, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost or the chief. So there, great testimony. And what's it talking to? That he's the chief of sinners and Christ came to save sinners. It's a great story, isn't it? Because it points us right to the cross and what Christ has done for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And yet Clayton King, he sits there and gives lip service to Jesus, never preaches him, hasn't preached him yet. Talks about John the Baptist. Oh, he's a role model for us so that we can have vision like he did. And yet he won't preach the same message that um, John the Baptist preached, that great man that Jesus said was great. I have a book deadline. August 1st is my book deadline. I'm writing. More stuff about Clayton King. Here we go. More Clayton King. No Jesus. The new version, some of y'all are familiar, on every campus of a, of a movement and a book that came out 20 years ago called True Love Waits. It was put out by Lifeway. Um, all over the world, the thing sold millions and millions of copies. It was in Uganda, the Philippines, all over Africa, South Korea. And they called me up from, from um, Lifeway. They called me up a few months ago and said, we're going to re-release the True Love Waits curriculum. We want to write a brand new one. We're a 20-year anniversary. We want to celebrate it, but we want to do a brand new book with a brand new message about sexual purity that focuses more on forgiveness and starting over because very few people are virgins anymore when they get married. We still believe in virginity, but we want to talk more about God's grace and God's forgiveness. And Yeah, let's talk about that. Are we finally going to get to the part where we're going to actually preach Christ and Him crucified for our sins? If so, I mean, I couldn't be happier, but man, it was a long time coming. How people can live outside of the shame of their past and not feel like damaged goods. And I thought they were going to ask me to speak at a, like a rally or something. And the guy said, where are you right now? It's like, I'm driving uh, in front of Hardee's in Boiling Springs, North Carolina. He's like, you might want to pull in the parking lot. It's like, okay, I pulled in the parking lot. He goes, we want you to write it, the whole thing. The video curriculum, the book curriculum, the trade book, the devotional book. Would you do that? And I, of course I said, yes. I was like, man, but why me? Why would you ask me to write this? There are so many other people out there with bigger platforms, big churches, you know, bigger names. Why me? He said, when you come to Nashville, we'll tell you why you got picked. So I go to Nashville. They take me up to the 14th floor of this big high-rise building, the Lifeway building. Walk into the vice president's office. First name is Eric. Eric goes, Clayton, I guess you're wondering why we ask you to write the new True Love Waits. I'm like, yes, among other things, that's what I'm wondering. Please tell me why. He said, 20 years ago when True Love Waits first came out, I was a high school sophomore, junior or sophomore, I can't remember. And you came to my church in West St. Charles, Louisiana, and you preached a True Love Waits rally. 
and you told us to repent of our sexual sin and you told us to quit having sex if we weren't married and you told us that if we had had sex, we should receive God's grace and God's forgiveness. And then, okay, that's the gospel, but he's not preaching it to the people there. He's just mentioning it in a story relayed to him from somebody else. Will Clayton King actually preach repentance, forgiveness, and grace? We'll see. And he said, you had the audacity. He's like, you were 20. And I remembered, I was a sophomore in college. He said, you told us that if we were Christians and we were sleeping with people that we weren't married to, that we were backslidden hypocrites and we should repent. He said, I gave everything to God that night. I completely committed my life to Jesus. I broke up with my girlfriend. I quit sleeping around. I quit messing around. I went off to college. I went to seminary. I got a PhD. I wrote some books. I pastored a church. Now I'm the VP at Lifeway. So when our president called a meeting two months ago and said, we're going to redo true love weights. We want it to be the biggest thing we've ever done at Lifeway. Who do you guys know that we could call and ask to write the book? Eric said, I raised my hand and told him the story. He said, so Clayton, what you did 20 years ago when you were in college that you had forgotten about is the reason why you're here today. Yeah. In other words, um, let me kind of frame this for you. Uh, Clayton is just telling us how wonderful Clayton is. And uh, Jesus got an honorable mention, you know, repenting of sins and forgiveness. That got mentioned in the story, uh, what, second, third hand. Um, But Jesus actually hasn't been preached yet in this message about Clayton King. God be praised. God be praised. Well, the way you tell the story, I mean, really, Clayton King be praised. Wow, you're such a great guy. I'm an adopted, illegitimate child who never met my birth parents. I know it's not about me. I know. Yeah, if you knew that, then why don't you preach Jesus instead and shut up about you? I'm done hearing about you. I've got nothing to offer. If you believe that, then you wouldn't be talking about you. You'd be telling me about Jesus, and you're not. But I can do what John did. I can be faithful by God's grace. Yeah, you're not, because John preached Jesus, and you're not. You can be faithful by God's grace. You can know your role and be faithful in it until... You're not going to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins, are you? Until the end of your life. And when you go to heaven, Jesus will call you great and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. And yet the Apostle Paul at the end of his life says, This is a trustworthy statement. Christ died for sinners of whom I am chief for the foremost. Yeah, okay. I'm not done. I got one more. Y'all ready? Okay. No, I don't want to hear anything more about you. Number five, a relentless witness outlives all critics. A relentless witness outlives all critics. Oh, yeah. He knew I was going to be listening to this. I tweeted this the other day, and it got a lot of retweets. A critic is simply someone who can't. Fill in the blank. A critic can't coach, so they criticize the coach. All right. Well, let's put this to the test. I mean, a critic is somebody who can't. Um, Well, all right. Let's take a look. Um, Matthew chapter um, 23. Okay. Jesus. These are the red letters. Woe to you, scribes and you Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! 
where you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of the of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, you who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath, you blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you... Say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Okay, so let's put this to the test. There's there's Jesus. You know what he's doing? He's being a critic. Who's he criticizing? The Pharisees. Well, according to Clayton King, you know, critics, somebody who can't. So that's why Jesus was being such a harsh critic of the Pharisees, because they were right and Jesus was wrong. He was he couldn't do and be as great as they were. So he well, he was just became a critic and a hater. Mm hmm. Yeah, right. This doesn't stand up to, to the smell of truth test. You know what I mean? A critic can't pass. So they criticize the quarterback. A critic. That's why Jesus was criticizing the Pharisees. That's why, because he couldn't be the quarterback himself. Can't cook or won't cook, so they criticize the food. That's exactly right. That's why Jesus was criticizing the Pharisees. And by doing so, he was showing us that the Pharisees were really right. Is that what was going on? A critic can't preach, so they criticize preachers. That's funny, because I do preach. John the Baptist had some critics. A couple of them were very powerful. Let's see how this man's life ends. In good old redneck fashion. Hey, y'all, watch this. Watch this. It says in Mark chapter 6, verse 17, that Herod was really mad at John the Baptist, and I'm going to show you why. Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and to chain him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. John had been telling Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Huh. Oh, wait a second. Oh, John the Baptist was being a critic of Herod. So John really is a good old boy, huh? Scared of nobody. Nobody's boy. Going to tell the truth, no matter who it hurts. John the Baptist was not afraid to look in the face of the most powerful man in Galilee and say, Herod Antipas, you are living in an incestuous and sinful relationship with your brother's wife, and that is not lawful, and you must repent. By the way, and I know we got a lot of people watching online, even outside of all of our campuses, if you want to know whether or not a man is a real preacher or a real prophet, if you want to know whether or not a woman is really teaching the truth of God's Word, if you want to know if somebody is preaching the real truth of Scripture, ask yourself one question. Did they ever say, repent? Now, this is interesting um, because so far in Clayton King's sermon, he's said the word repent, but he has not yet told the people at New Spring to repent. Nope, not once. Weird, huh? Because that's the true mark of a prophet or a preacher. Repent. Turn away from your sin and turn to Christ. Forsake your sin and embrace the gospel. John the Baptist. Yeah, and okay, why don't you tell us then what the gospel is and then tell people to forsake their sin and to repent? You still haven't done it. 
preach repentance to the religious people when they came out to see him baptizing in the Jordan and John the Baptist preached repentance to the pagans like Herod Antipas who was sleeping with his brother's wife. John the Baptist. I really do hope, and you know, I'm, at this point I'm serious, I really hope that he's building up enough courage to tell the people at New Spring to repent of their sin. I hope that's what he's going to do here. Because so far he still hasn't actually done it. This was nobody's boy but God's. That's what I want to be. I'm nobody's boy but God's. Whatever the consequences are, I want to die preaching the gospel. Watch. Um, okay, great. I'm glad you want to die preaching the gospel. Why don't you practice by actually preaching it here at New Spring? Because you haven't done it yet. That's what happens to John. Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not. So the woman who was having the affair with, her, with Herod, Antipas, she's mad because John's messing her personal business. I mean, it's her body. She can have sex with whoever she wants to, right? Two consenting adults. Nobody can rob them of, of the pleasure of having sex with each other, right? Marriage means nothing. The law means nothing. Let's just, and she's angry because Herod was in awe of John and was protecting him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he would be very disturbed, yet he would gladly hear him. So Herod would go visit John the Baptist in prison and listen to John preach and would feel convicted but wouldn't turn from his sin. He would not repent. So what happens? Verse 21. Now an opportune time came on his birthday when Herod gave a banquet for his nobles, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. When Herodias' own daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So apparently this seductive dance put Herod in a mood. He was so pleased, so obsessed with this girl that to impress all of his highly influential and powerful friends, he makes this big promise, I'll give you whatever you want. So the young daughter goes to her mother and said, what should I ask for? John the Baptist's head. Immediately, she hurried to the king and said, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter right now. Can I pause right here and draw your attention to something really obvious? That following Jesus doesn't always give you the happy ending that you had hoped for. You'll get Jesus eventually, but you might have to die to get him. You might have to give up something. It might hurt a little bit. But when you've got a clear vision, it doesn't matter. You've seen Jesus. Kill me. You've seen Jesus. Take it all. You've seen Jesus. You know that you get Jesus. John knew that. So, though the king was deeply distressed because of his oaths and the guests, he did not want to refuse her. The king immediately sent for an executioner and commanded him to bring John's head. So he went and beheaded him in prison brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard about it, they came and removed his corpse and placed it in a tomb. John the Baptist is chained up in jail. An executioner comes. And I imagine the story because it's how my mind works. He brings John out of his prison cell. He puts chains around his hands, ties them behind his back, puts him down on his knees, tells him to assume the position. I can imagine John the Baptist laying his head over a chopping block, 
And I can imagine that same John the Baptist who leaped for joy when he was in the presence of Jesus in his mother's womb. That same John the Baptist who never backed down from telling religious people to repent from their religion. That same red neck John the Baptist who didn't care what people thought about him. Who would stand up to a man with power and authority like Herod Antipas and say, you're breaking the law and you're going to be punished if you don't straighten up. I can imagine that same John the Baptist as he places his head down on that chopping block and the last words that were ever spoken from his mouth before they severed his head from his body were, repent! The kingdom of God is near! Repent! The Son of Man has come! Dead. Do you think he regretted that one second after they chopped his head off? Do you think he regrets that today? He, I really do hope that Clayton King here is building up to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to the folks at New Spring. So far, he still hasn't preached it. He's with his cousin, Jesus, today. See, a relentless witness found people who go out and find people saved people who go out and serve people, volunteers who stand in the parking lot in the hot August Sunday afternoon sun and wave at y'all when y'all drive in, who stand out there in the freezing cold rain in January and help you find a parking spot, the volunteers that pray with people after our services, the people in Kids Spring, every volunteer at every campus. Do you think for one second that any of us will ever regret being a a witness for Jesus? Do you think we'll ever regret it, even if it costs us our life? See, if you... Yeah, it's going to cost you your life working the parking lot detail at New Spring. I would hope they have safety precautions in, in you know in place and actually if you die in a tragic parking lot accident as a volunteer at New Spring um, that actually does not count as a martyr's death. Just want to make sure we understand that. You get Jesus and lose everything, you haven't lost anything. Because he's everything. Again, if he's everything, why haven't you preached him at all? The critics can't do anything, but a witness knows that Jesus did it all. And we point people to Jesus. Yeah, that would require you to actually preach Jesus, and you haven't done that. I've read this story in a couple of places. During one of the great awakenings in the United States of America, there was a preacher named Charles Finney. Uh, Flat-out heretic. Charles Finney was a heretic. Absolute flat-out heretic. And as the story goes that I read, Charles Finney was preaching near Washington, D.C. This was in the 1800s. And they told President Andrew Jackson, Charles Finney... Cue sappy music. This is to create the false impression that God the Holy Spirit is now descending on the congregation in order to do business with people. Um, So far, um, Clayton King has used the word repentance, but never applied it to the folks there at New Spring. Never told them they need to repent. Never told them they need to repent and be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ. He hasn't confronted with them with their sins, hasn't told them to repent, hasn't told them to be forgiven. He hasn't told them any of that yet. Is preaching. You need to go hear him. Andrew Jackson had apparently heard about this great awakening. And so Andrew Jackson took some friends and they went to hear Charles Finney. When they arrived at that church that night, Some people recognized the president of the United States. 
So they went into one of the rooms at that church and they found Charles Finney with his Bible open preparing to preach. He had seen thousands of people come to Christ during the Second Great Awakening. And they said, Mr. Finney, the President of the United States is, it, is in the house tonight. He's come to hear you preach. And Charles Finney said, thank you. And he apparently didn't even look up from his Bible. And the man said, no, sir, Andrew Jackson, the President of the United States, is here now. He's come to hear you preach. And Charles Finley evidently said, thank you for that information. And when Charles Finney walked out on the stage that night to preach, the first words out of his mouth went something like this. It has been brought to my attention that the President of the United States of America has come to God's house tonight to hear God's word proclaimed. What an honor to have the President here under the teaching of God's word. But may I let you know, sir, if you are indeed in the house tonight, that you too, sir, must repent of your sins and trust Christ, or you too shall perish. Okay, now, uh, he's getting closer to it. Okay, this isn't actually Clayton King telling the folks at New Spring they need to repent of their sins and to be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ. He's relaying Charles Finney telling Andrew Jackson that he needs to repent of his sins. Clayton King has still not actually confronted anybody at New Spring with their sins and Christ and him crucified for their sins. I'm hoping that he's going to build up to it, but he still hasn't. Maybe he's trying to work up that redneck courage, you know? With all those who are doomed and will not turn to Christ. And after Andrew Jackson sat through that sermon, he was reported to have said to someone after the service, if I had an army of men like that preacher, I would rule the world. So now you just need to be like Charles Finney. Isn't the whole point to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name? Yeah, so now even in his illustration, the point is Charles Finney rather than Christ. Good night. Because he knew who he worked for. He knew his role. He had a clear vision, a bold voice, and he was nobody's boy. Let's be the sons and daughters of God. And let's go find people and point them to Jesus. Yeah, but you haven't done, you haven't pointed anybody to Jesus in this sermon. Even though we are not worthy to untie his shoes, he has made us worthy by his grace. There's a mention of it. What, what does that mean? Can you, I mean, when the few, the few seconds you have left of this sermon, could you explain that to me? Unpack all of that, please. And we get the privilege of preparing the way for those. No, we don't get the privilege of preparing the way. John the Baptist did that. <sighs> those who have not heard and those who don't know. Every campus, can you close your eyes and open your hearts with me before we, before we go? All right, we're done. We don't play the prayer part. So there you go. A sermon that mentions repentance, but didn't actually preach repentance. Uh, he talks about how, you know, a true preacher is one who actually says the word repentance. No, actually, a true preacher is the one who calls the people within the sh- sound of his voice to repent.
of their sins, confronts them with their sins, and placards Jesus Christ and him crucified, and their redemption won by his blood. The fact that he was in their place, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace with God was upon him. So repent of your sinfulness. Repent of your wickedness. Repent of you preaching yourself rather than Christ and be forgiven. Because what you are doing and what you did, Clayton, is absolutely abhorrent. It's appalling. It's absolutely blasphemous. How dare you give lip service to Jesus and Jesus' own church and then not call the people there to repent of their sins and to be forgiven. Not placard Christ while claiming all the time it's all about him. It wasn't about him at all. That entire sermon was about Clayton King, one that he needs to repent of because it is evil and wicked. But even now, Christ will forgive you, Clayton. Repent and be forgiven of this blasphemous wickedness and narcissistically reading yourself into these texts and preaching yourself rather than Jesus. We're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>